Would you please take your Bibles and turn in them to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're taking a short break from the series that we've been doing going through the book of Exodus so that during the month of January we're doing a special four-part series on sort of the big issues of the Christian worldview in four parts where we go through essentially the entirety of the biblical storyline from beginning to end in four steps. And the four steps are creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And so last week we began this this series and we looked at creation. Uh, Today we're going to be looking at the fall and then two more weeks for redemption and consummation. So I want to read all of Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through uh, 24. 1 through 24. So let me ask, if, if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, 
and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you have not left us without a guide. You have given us your word through the scriptures. We pray now that you would give us ears that are ready and willing to hear your word. Give us hearts that receive it, that trust it, that treasure it up. Lord, give us of your spirit, Lord, that we might not simply see words on a page and move on, but may we receive this as the word of God, which is given to us to make us wise unto salvation to teach us about our need for Christ and to teach us about Jesus himself and his work for us, saving a people for himself, redeeming us out of our sin and calling us back to himself, remaking the world that has fallen in sin. Lord, we ask that Jesus will be glorified as we study your word today. We pray through Jesus and in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So there's really four basic questions that every person has to answer as we try to make sense out of the world and try to make sense out of our lives and our place in this world. What is the purpose of life? What does it mean to be human? And these are the four questions that every person has to come to grips with. Who am I? Where am I? What is wrong? And what's the solution? Those are sort of four big picture questions that the answer that we give to those questions is what is going to inform the way that we respond to this world and the way that we live in the world. So last week when we started talking, and we talked about the creation, and we talked about God's purpose for creation, his delight in creation, we began to answer the first two of those questions. Right? The first question is, who am I? And we said part of the answer that the Bible gives us is that we are the creation of a good and holy and loving God. We are created in his image and he made all things out of nothing. And and that's important. That our lives, therefore, have great significance. That human life has meaning because we're not here by chance. We're here by the intention and the will of God. We have great dignity because we're created in the image of God. All people, all races, all income levels, all socioeconomic statuses, all people whatsoever are created in the image of God, and therefore we're created with dignity and value and worth. And we can know that our choices are significant. What we do matters because of who we are, because we're created by God. So we began to answer this question of who are we. We also answered the second question, where am I? <clears throat> we are in the world that God created out of nothing in the space of six days, and he stood back and he looked at it and he said, this is all very good. It's God's good creation. The world was spoken into being by a a holy, wise, righteous, loving God. And so we can begin to place ourselves and to begin to think about what life means and what it means to be human by understanding 
who we are. We're, we're humans created in the image of God with value, worth, and dignity. Where are we? Well, we live in a world that is created by God. But we also have to answer the third question. What is wrong? And that's a, 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 a wide question. It's a bold question. But we all know just by living in this world that something is wrong. Something is deeply and profoundly wrong because we, we don't need any more than our own life experience to tell us that things don't go the way that we think they should. Something is wrong. And, and I would say everyone is asking this question in some way. Everyone has some sense, whether we can name it or not, that something is simply off in this world. Good is not always rewarded. Things are bad. People treat one another poorly, killing, abusing, saying mean things. There's suffering in this world. There's evil in the world. We know this. We all know this. Simply by our experiences, we know this. But what we don't agree on is the next question. What's the diagnosis? What's wrong? How can we name the problems that we feel so acutely in this world? And therefore, what can we do about it? Because the fourth question that we'll answer next week, what is the solution? We can't answer that until we've answered this question, what is wrong? What is wrong? What's the diagnosis? That's what we need is a diagnosis. I've learned through the personal experience of, of my family and other friends, and many of you know this as well, that uh, <clears throat> one of the most trying things that you can experience with respect to a health crisis is the experience of not having a diagnosis, of being sick or knowing that something is wrong, something doesn't feel right, but, but you don't know what. And you go to the doctor and they don't know what. That's frustrating. As, as bad as it is to have illnesses or injuries or sicknesses, that's hard enough. But then to not know what it is is very trying. I remember several years ago when Ezra was in the hospital, I think it was the, the third or fourth day, uh, we were still waiting for that diagnosis and the doctor came in and he said, well, this case is very interesting. I said, I'm not looking for interesting here. <laughs> I'm looking for a name to put on this because once you have the diagnosis, you can begin to move on, right? You can start to seek a treatment plan. You can look at your options. How can we cure this? How can we begin to deal with it? Uh, how, how can we kind of... Uh, and come to terms with the prognosis for the disease. Most people would, would really much rather have a, a, an illness that comes with a diagnosis, even if it's a serious one, than to simply be left in the lurch of not knowing what is wrong. Even worse, perhaps, is to get the wrong diagnosis. Because with the wrong diagnosis, you, then you move on to a treatment plan, but it's not going to cure the illness. It, it might even make it worse, and you end up with greater frustration that things aren't getting better. And so even as we look at the world, we need to be able to put a diagnosis on what is wrong. It's not enough to have this general sense, things are not right. We need to know why. And the truth of it is that <clears throat> the Bible diagnoses the problem for us very clearly. We read in, in these chapters that the, the scriptural answer is right here. We have a diagnosis, and not only do we have the diagnosis of what is wrong, but we have a treatment plan. And the good news is there is a cure. But we need the diagnosis first. And so what we talk about today is the fall, this, this four-step series through, through the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Today we're talking about the fall and what it means that uh, creation is now fallen in sin and what sin is. So first, what do we mean by 
the fall. We read the story here in Genesis chapter 3 of Adam and Eve. God has created them. He's put them in the Garden of Eden to keep it and to work it, to tend to it. It's a garden, and, and that's their job. They're gardeners. The first human beings worked in a garden to tend to it. They ate the fruit of the garden. And now we come to uh, chapter 3. God has given them only one rule. And it's repeated here. He says they're allowed to eat any plant in the entire garden is theirs. It's given to them for food. Creation is good, but there is one tree, and it's in the midst of the garden that they are not to eat of or to, to touch. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as we read chapter 3, on, on the one hand, it's a very simple story, isn't it? It's a story of sin and its consequences. Disobedience followed by punishment. Adam and Eve disobey the, the law that God has given them. They eat from the tree because the serpent is there. He's just being introduced. It's very vague, isn't it? But later in the Bible, we learn more and more about this crafty serpent who has met them in the garden. And he tempts them. He tempts Eve first, and she eats. And she gives it to Adam, and he eats as well. And God comes, and he walks in the garden, and he finds them, and he gives punishment. It's a very simple story, but, but the reality is this is an absolutely world-changing story. Right? The entire history of all of the earth and all of humanity is radically changed in this chapter because Adam's sin doesn't just affect Adam or Adam and Eve. It affected the entire world. One of our catechism questions, shorter catechism Question number 16. Did all mankind fall in Adam's first transgression? And this is the answer. The covenant being made with Adam, not only for himself, but for his posterity, all mankind descending from him by ordinary generation, sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. Hear what that says. Adam... You see, the covenant was made with Adam between God and Adam, but not only for Adam, but for all of his descendants. See, it says that in the garden, Adam was our representative. We weren't there, but in a way we were there. There's a, a theological sense that Adam was in the garden, but he was representing an entire class of people, and he was their representative. His actions were not only his actions, but they are also counted as our actions. Right? We know something of this simply from uh, living in a representative republic as we do in a political landscape. In any country, really, the actions of the, the king or the president are not his alone, but they're the actions of the country as a whole, for better or worse. So it is with Adam. His actions, for better or for worse, are not his actions alone, but they have implications and consequences for all the people whom he represents. And he represents everyone. Everyone who descends from him by ordinary generation. Well, that's everybody. Right? If we trace the lineages back far enough, we all find Adam and Eve as a common ancestor. Another way of saying this is simply that we are all, by nature, in Adam. We are all in Adam. <clears throat> Just as when we get to the New Testament, we talk about believers being in Christ. So that for those whose faith is in Christ, we are in Christ. Now, Christ is our representative. And his actions are not his actions alone, but they will be counted as being the actions of all the people whom he represents. And so we have this picture in the Bible of the first Adam, who's actually Adam, and the second Adam, whose name is Jesus, and they are the two, we call them the federal heads. 
They are the representatives. Every human being is either represented by Adam, and his actions count as your actions, or you're represented by Christ, and his actions count as your actions. And that's, that's one of the great divides that, that shows up. There are two covenant heads. Everyone's in one of them. By nature, I'm represented by Adam. That's how I'm born. I'm represented by him. I'm in sin. What he did was done on my behalf. And so as he sinned, therefore the guilt is not only Adam's, the guilt is mine. But by grace and by faith, we are also now represented by Christ. And what he did counts as being done for me. So that his death is now my death. My sins are are his sins. Are, are put on him, and he pays the penalty for them. That's why what happens here in Genesis chapter 3 is so monumental. It's not simply sin. This is the fall. The whole creation, which God has made just in just these previous chapters, which he looked at and he said, it's all very good, is now radically changed, fallen into sin. And it's not just that sins are committed, but what we see is that human nature becomes corrupted. God made Adam and Eve, he made man and woman, and he said, this is very good. He was pleased. There was nothing wrong. They were created in perfection and innocence, but now after the fall, that all changes. That all changes. Now human nature is corrupted because of this. Because this guilt of Adam's first sin is now passed on to all his descendants. It's the very nature of what it means to be human. We talk about the terms total depravity how we describe it, total depravity. It's one of the easiest doctrines to prove you have only to look around this world and say, yes, there is a lot of sin and misery and depravity in this world. But what we see is, how do we understand that? It, it doesn't mean that every single person is absolutely as bad as they could possibly be. And that's not what we mean, because you can look around and you can see people, believer and unbeliever alike, who continue to do good things. They continue to love their families. They continue to provide for their families. You can see a, a, a totally unbelieving person who might uh, hold the hand of an old lady and help her across the street and say, that's a wonderful good deed. It doesn't mean we're absolutely as bad as we can be. Rather, what it means is that every aspect of what it means to be a person is somehow affected by sin, somehow corrupted by the presence of sin. So it's our wills we no longer in our will will naturally gravitate towards choosing that which is good. It's our, our hearts, it's our emotions. We no longer naturally will feel joy at righteousness and sorrow at sin. It's our minds that are no longer naturally going to be engaged in pursuing the love of God. Every area of what it means to be a human is uh, corrupted. And the truth is, after Adam, we're all born that way. We're all born that way. You have to teach little babies lots of things, but you don't have to teach them how to disobey. You don't have to teach them how to rebel, how to sin. That's hardwired. After, after the fall, it's hardwired. We like to look at little babies and we like to comment on how cute and how innocent they are. And I'm a, I'm a nice pastor. I don't ever correct people for saying that. But theologically, they're not innocent, right? We're guilty. We're born that way. Psalm 51, David says, Surely in iniquity did my mother conceive me. What he's talking about there is the fact that our sin nature, this guilt that we've inherited from Adam, it's, it's part of who we are simply by birth. That is what happens here in Genesis chapter 3. Now, 
what else comes as a, as a result of this? Another one of our, our catechism questions simply asks, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? Into what estate did the fall bring mankind? And the answer, this is one of my favorite answers, only because it's so short and pithy and, and accurate. The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. That's your diagnosis. Because of sin, because of Adam's first sin and now the, the spread to all people, we are in an estate of sin and misery. Let's look at misery first and then we'll come back to sin. One of the things that we understand by this is simply what uh, answer to the question, why do we see so much misery in the world? Why is there so much just badness and pain and suffering? Well, we trace it right back to this chapter of the Bible. There's a few things that are mentioned specifically in here. Uh, these verses from verse 14 to verse 19, this is God's punishment, called the curse that God gives because of sin. This is the consequences that they have to endure. Look at uh, verse 17 here. He talks to Adam, and he has some particular things towards Adam. And uh, <clears throat> the main thing we see is that his work is cursed. His work, the labor that he does, the job, his profession is cursed such that it goes from being good and satisfying and productive and fulfilling to being frustrating. Look at verse 17. God said to Adam, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Thorns and thistles. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth. Remember, Adam is a gardener. He works the land. He works plants. He cultivates. Thorns and thistles is the description of what his work is going to be like from now on. Presumably prior to the fall, his work was, was much easier. He was productive. He had a will for his garden. He imposed it on it. It did what he desired. The fruit grew. <clears throat> he didn't have to weed the garden. But now God says thorns and thistles are the result of your labor. And by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. We mentioned before, and this is what we saw last week, that work, ultimately, the work itself was good. Work is not a result of the fall. Work itself is good. God gave Adam and Eve a job to do and they were working before the fall. That's part of God's good design for what it is to be human is that we work. We cultivate this earth in all sorts of different ways. We work it to the glory of God. Work is not a result of the fall, but thorns and thistles sure are. Thorns and thistles are a result of the fall. Because of sin, there's not only this sort of theological understanding that, that our relationship with God is broken. That's true. But so is our relationship to our professions, to our work that we do, to this world. It's now frustrating. <clears throat> and I think I'm safe saying none of us in this room are farmers. My old church, that was not true. This was very easy to apply. We had lots of farmers. <laughs> here, I don't think we have any farmers in here, but the, it just, it's a parallel transfer of the same principle, right? Just as farmers experience frustration with the thorns and the thistles and the weeds that come up, and it's, it's the sweat of their brow now by which they are able to grow and cultivate food. It's the same for all of us, regardless of what field we work in. We have equipment that breaks. We have plans that don't pan out. 
We have computers that get viruses or that run too slow or that decide to install updates at the worst possible time. We have houses that don't stay clean. We have work that needs to be redone because it was done poorly the first time. Not only this, but it's not just the, the work itself, but, but we, the workers, the ones doing the work, are, are equally broken. Our work suffers oftentimes because of us, doesn't it? Because we're prone to laziness. We seek shortcuts. We do the work with only a concern for ourselves and not a concern for others, not a concern for the environment, not a concern for the safety of those working with us. All these things that introduce futility and they introduce frustration into the work that we are called to do. And that work is good. It's given to us by God. It's the labor of our hands, which we ask him to bless. But the way the work is done is meant is now, it, it's a frustration to us. And that's a result of sin. Right? You can just go home from your job and if you're you know, stuck in traffic thinking about how frustrating your day has been, you can say, you know, God has given me the exact reason why today was so frustrating. Work produces thorns and thistles for all of us. And it's a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. So our work suffers, our relationships suffer. Our relationships suffer. Look at verse 16. We're kind of working backwards. To the woman, to Eve, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Pain in childbirth is part of the result of the fall. But also, so is the, the brokenness of the harmony of the original marriage relationship before sin entered the world. So God says to Eve, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he will rule over you. In other words, it's no longer going to come naturally to men to serve as humble, sacrificial, godly servant leaders uh, on behalf of their wives and family. He says his desire, or he will rule over you. There's going to be a, this harshness that just comes naturally now. For the wives, it's no longer going to be natural for them joyfully and gladly to submit to their husband's godly leadership. Rather, your desire shall be for, that's kind of a contrary to him. There's going to be marital strife. Marital strife, no matter how major or how minor it may be, is plainly accounted for right here. Genesis 3.16 explains so much of life, doesn't it? You no longer gladly and humbly and joyfully submit to the Lord by fitting easily into the roles that he has designed for us to have in our relationships. We kick against those goads. We don't want to submit. We don't want to be whom God has designed us to be. And we pay the price for it. Those around us pay the price for it. Our relationships pay the price for it. And I think he's talking specifically here about marriage, but we can easily extrapolate this all the relationships in life, can't we? And God in his grace is able to do wonderful works in redeeming our relationships, in, in humbling us and giving us joy and submitting and obeying to him. But simply by nature, by who we are, fallen in sin, our relationships are broken and they suffer. And they suffer because we're fallen in sin. Because things are not the way they're supposed to be. That's the title of a great book on sin is simply that. The title of the book is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Isn't that, isn't that the truth? It's just, things are just not the way they're supposed to be, and that's exactly what the Bible tells us. Blaise Pascal has a, <clears throat> has a section where he's talking about original sin, and he has some very interesting comments on it. He, he says, first of all, on the one hand, 
how strange it is to the ear of modern man to think that every person we know in the world today is affected so profoundly and so deeply by what Adam did in the garden so many thousands of years ago. That's, that, that's weird to us. You know, why, why does that impact who we are? How does he impact my choices? Isn't it me and my decisions that affect my life? It doesn't make any sense. But then he says, on the other hand, it makes total sense out of the world. Right? To, look at, just to look at the biblical data and to see what it teaches about the fall and the corruption of human nature and the thorns and the thistles that the world will now provide for us in response to our labor. So that fits our experience perfectly. We read that and we say, well, that, that certainly makes a whole lot of sense because that's the way we understand the world. And so on the one hand, it, it may strike us as modern folks. It may seem very antiquated to, to think that we can read what the Bible has to say about the creation of the world and the fall into sin, and to think that that somehow is, is true and teaches us what it means to be human, but we have to admit, on the other hand, it makes perfect sense. To read what the Bible says about creation and say, yes, that fits what, what we instinctively feel. Right? We instinctively know that to be human is to have dignity. That to be human is to have some worth and some value that human beings are not simply another one of the animals or not simply some uh, product or, or resource that we can use and dispose of at our own pleasure, that there's something special about being human. We, we feel that, and creation explains that perfectly. And, and we also know from firsthand experience that life is not the way it's supposed to be, that our work is frustrating to us, that our relationships are difficult. And we often suffer in them because things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And again, the story of the fall perfectly explains that. So we might say it sounds weird to submit ourselves to Genesis and to think that this has a bearing on life, but on the other hand, it doesn't seem weird at all. It's the perfect diagnosis for the problem that we suffer from. And ultimately, what do we suffer? We suffer death. The ultimate result of the fall is this. As God said to them, This is the law. On the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. The ultimate consequence, it's beyond frustration and broken relationships, it's death itself. Again, here's the catechism. The catechism puts it so well. What is the misery of that estate into which man fell? And here's the answer. By his fall, man lost communion with God, is under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. That's the ultimate penalty for our sin, is that our sins now deserve death, and we die because of sin. Now, that means we need to talk about sin. The Bible talks about sin. We need to talk about it. We often don't like to talk about sin. We muddle when we talk about sin. We say, mistakes were made. I need some growth in this area. This is one of my weaknesses. But we so rarely use the word sin to talk about what we really know is wrong. Sin makes us uncomfortable. But that's the diagnosis. And a diagnosis might be hard to listen to, but it can also be very hope-giving because only when you have the diagnosis can you begin to hear the cure. We need to talk about sin. Our sin is, is personal. Sin is an offense against God, right? This is, 
What David says in Psalm 51, he's reflecting on his sin with Bathsheba, and he says to the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned. Against you and you only have I sinned. He understands that, that the deep reality about sin is that every sin is ultimately a sin against God. It's not just a, a weakness. It's not a mistake that we can just move on from. But that there's a, an understanding that it is a sin against the one true God. So we understand from that that, that when a person cheats on their taxes, that's not just a sin against the IRS. That's a sin against God. When someone says mean words to hurt somebody, that's a sin against God himself. Sin is personal. Sin is serious. As we just said, sin is serious. It deserves death. It deserves hell. Sin is not a light or an easy topic for us to talk about. It's not a light subject. It's serious. Indeed, one of the great dangers of our world today is that we've stopped taking sin seriously. We... We would rather joke about it because that's easier. But sin is serious. We'll never ask for forgiveness for things that we joke about. We won't ask for forgiveness for things that we don't think are a big deal. We need to accurately call sin what it is. It's it's personal, it's serious, it's heinous. Sin Sin is terrible. Sin ruins good things. Sin ruins good relationships. Sin ruins good work. Sin ruins good lives. Sin brings darkness. Sin brings hiding. Shame we see in this passage. Adam and Eve, what do they do? The very first thing they do after they sin is they hide from God. Whereas previously they had walked and talked and enjoyed communion with God in the cool of the day as they walked in the garden. Now here comes God for the daily afternoon chat and they're hiding from him. They don't want him to see them because of sin. Our sin does the same thing to us. When we have a conviction that we are sinners, we would rather hide from God. It's the shame that sin brings because it ruins good things. But again, it's a diagnosis. It's a diagnosis and there's a cure. We can bring it into the light. We can admit to the problem because we know there's a cure, but to get the cure, you have to admit the problem. And that's the good news here is is sin, it's personal, it's serious, it's heinous, but... Sin can be forgiven. Sin can be forgiven. We even have the the very first hint of it in this passage in in Genesis 3.15. He's talking to the serpent saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And then this little line, he, the offspring of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians for centuries have agreed that what What that is, that is the very first promise of the gospel. That is the very first promise. As soon as sin has entered into the world, God makes the promise that he is going to do something about it. That the offspring of the woman is going to come and she is going to, or he, this offspring, is going to bruise the head of the serpent. And that little tiny line has so much hope that is yet to be unfolded from it. There's so much that is yet to come because as we said, Adam is not the only representative. There's also Jesus. Romans 5 calls Jesus the second Adam. He's like Adam. He's a representative. He's this federal head. But where Adam sinned, Jesus was perfect. Where Adam failed, Jesus was victorious. 
where Adam ruined so much, leading the entire human race into sin and corruption in the fall, Jesus was victorious. And he took all of our sins onto his shoulders, paid the penalty for them by going to the cross and receiving in his own body the wrath of God due to us for our sin. And then he was raised from the dead. The grave could not hold him. He took the penalty of sin, which is death, and he defeated it with his own death. And therefore, those who are in Christ live with Christ. As Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a really sort of fascinating way that the Bible brings this to a conclusion. You could think of it as, as the bookends of the Bible, the bookends of the Bible, because here we are in the third chapter of the Bible, the third chapter of the Bible, and we see the first appearance of the serpent, who's Satan, who comes to tempt Adam and Eve, and they commit the first sin, and therefore creation is cursed and sin enters the world. This is the first bookend. We have two chapters in the beginning where everything is good, everything is perfect, everything is happy. And then in the third chapter, sin enters the world and everything is falling. But there's a second bookend. At the very end, the third to last chapter of the Bible, the third to last chapter of the Bible is Revelation chapter 19. And in Revelation 19, we get the last appearance of Satan in the Bible. Because in this appearance, uh, 19 verse 10, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In this chapter, in this bookend, Satan is removed from the picture. Sin, death, and hell are removed from the picture. And in the last two chapters, just like in the first two, there was good creation that was happy with no sin, death, or sadness. In the last two chapters now, we have the new heavens and the new earth. And God restores all things. Sin is no more... Satan is no more. Death is no more. Frustration and brokenness are no more. Everything is made new. These are the two bookends. The two bookends of biblical theology. Uh, Sin entering the world in the third chapter and leaving the world in the third to last chapter. Now, why do we talk so much about sin in the fall? We do it mostly because it has great explanatory power for the world, to help us understand why things are the way they are. But there's another reason. I believe that only when we understand the nature of sin and the depth of sin will we truly begin to treasure Jesus as we ought to be. Knowing our own sin helps us find joy in Jesus. Now, the first response is to say, if we're talking about sin, that's, that's depressing. We're all going to leave here on a a sad note. But the reality of it is when we know our own sin as believers in Christ, that helps us to treasure Jesus as he ought to be treasured. Some of you have seen what I think of as my favorite graph of the Christian life. If you've been in any class I've taught new members, new officers, whatever, I've showed you this graph of the Christian life, and it shows our life going along, and there are two lines that diverge like this. The top line is our knowledge of God his holiness, his righteousness, his purity. And, and throughout life, as we grow in our knowledge of God, that, li- that line continues to go up. 
We also have this line going down, and that's our knowledge of our own sin. And the truth is, as we go through life, as we continue to learn about ourselves and grow, we know more of our sin. That's why the line is going down. And, and, and we know the depth of our sin more, and we see new, new aspects of our sin. But between these two lines is a cross, because it's the cross of Christ that bridges the gap between our sin and God's holiness, that, it, that reconciles us to God, that takes care of this deficit. And here's the thing. As the two lines continue to get further apart, the cross grows larger and larger and larger and larger to cover the gap between our sin and God's holiness. And, and the cross getting bigger means it's bigger in our own eyes. It's bigger in our own estimation. When we first meet Christ, we think of the cross as, as kind of small, to be honest. We, we think, well, yes, we've sinned a couple times. We know of a few things we can think of offhand. And we think, okay, Jesus paid the penalty for those. That's nice of him. But the more we know ourselves, the better we understand our own spiritual condition. We understand the depth of our sin. And we understand Jesus did not simply die for the two sins that I can remember right now. He died for millions of my sins. Ones I know and ones I've never even noticed. Things I can't think of. Things that haven't occurred to me yet. Those were sins against God and he paid the penalty for those. And as I understand that, I have this growing appreciation for what Jesus has done for me. And I have this growing delight that he covered not the four sins of last week, he covered millions of my sins. And each one of those sins deserved hell. And so it's only as we understand our sin, our sin against God, that we grow in our appreciation for Jesus. We grow in our love for Jesus. Because we have this growing knowledge and this growing understanding of what he did for us. You see, the Bible says that, uh, <clears throat> that God loved us while we were yet sinners and sent his son Jesus to die for us while we were sinners. And he covered that sin. He paid for that sin. That's the beauty of the work of Jesus for us. And the more we understand the sin, the more we love Jesus, the Savior, from sin. If we only go shallow in our knowledge of ourselves, we'll be shallow in our, knowledge, in our love for Jesus. But when we grow deep in our understanding of what sin is, we'll go deep in our love for our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why I want us to think about this. To love Jesus, to know Jesus, to <clears throat> have greater delight, greater humility, greater joy, greater peace, greater love. The, unknowing the cross is the path to growing in grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his death. Lord, thank you that he has come to make things new, far as the curse can be paid for by the death of Jesus, that we now come into your presence with great joy. No more shame, no more hiding, no more sadness, great confidence through Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask now that you would take this word, would you work it in our hearts. Lord, may we not simply hear it one ear and out the other, but would you help us to treasure up these things, treasure them in our hearts, to practice them in our lives, right, that the seed that has been sown will not be uh, plucked away quickly by the birds, but will take root and bear fruit in our lives 30, 60, 100 times that which is sown. We pray in Jesus' name.